The vintage of river is unending. Grape heavy woods ripen darkening the sweetness. Tight with golden light the hills have been gathered. Granite weights of sun tread of burning days. Unending river swells from the press to gladden men. Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. I started with that Ted Hughes poem because today we are lucky enough to have three passionate river lovers on the podcast who've all taken their personal river relationships and turned them into public campaigns to protect one of the most polluted and abused natural habitats on our planet. Ted Hughes's love of rivers and fishing inspired Dr Mark Warmold, who is Director of Studies in English, Pembroke College, Cambridge, to write The Catch, Fishing for Ted Hughes. Mark is also the driving force behind the conference Owned by Everyone, The Wonder, Plight and Future of Chalk Streams, which is a partnership between Pembroke College, Wild Fish and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. Mark, hello and a very warm welcome to the podcast. Hello, Amanda. It's great to be here. A love of rivers is equally fundamental to my other guests, and I'm delighted to welcome Fergal Sharkey, former frontman of the punk band The Undertones, a passionate campaigner for rivers, and chairman of the Amwell Magna Fishery, one of the oldest fly fishing clubs in the UK. Fergal, so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to chat about something I care desperately about. Well, we're very excited to have you. Dr Amy Jane Beer is a biologist, naturalist, writer and campaigner for improved access to rivers and waterways with Right to Roam. She is both a columnist for The Guardian and an author. And her new book, The Flow, Rivers, Water and Wildness, explores themes of nature and connection. Amy, thank you so much for being with us and welcome. Total pleasure, Amanda. Thanks for having me on. I feel with these three expert guests, I should probably just shut up now and leave the the, the mics to you. But I wonder if I might try and uh, um, manage some of the conversation a little bit, but perhaps start with a question for you all. Why are rivers so important? What makes rivers so magical? Amy, could I start with you? Um, What makes them magical for me is that they are the places on the planet where water is at its most alive. I think it's the same the same water that's been going round and round our, our beautiful planet for four billion years. And it spends vast, vast epochs and eons of its time, of its of its own life in the dark, um, in dark places in the deep ocean or deep underground or bound in ice. Um, and the, the tiny fraction of a single percentage of of water on the planet that's that's fresh and flowing under the sun, um, sparkling and chattering in our rivers. Um, it just compels us to to pay attention. I think um, psychologists call it soft fascination that that property of flowing water to just sort of carry our thoughts. Water carries our thoughts and it carries our chemistry. Um, so it's it's just a there's a, there's a deep sort of metaphysical aspect to our relationship with water, which is is very much embodied by rivers. And that's something that you explore in part in your book, isn't it? And you talk about that that relationship and that reconnection with rivers. Connection is what rivers do for us. It's what water does for us. Um, And we're talking, um, obviously, ecological connections. We're talking spiritual connections. We're talking community connections. Um, You know, I could go on. And that's that's one of the reasons that that people care so passionately about these extraordinary arteries. And Fergal, you're you're a fisherman. 
and obviously um i guess some of your your love of rivers comes from 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 standing by them with a rod but but when did it start for you uh well for me personally it began about 10 years old 10 11 years old uh funny enough when i discovered uh, this thing called fly fishing <laughs> which uh yes i have now spent getting on for five decades of my life standing about in rivers, waving various bits of split cane carbon fiber, fiberglass around my head in a futile attempt to beat the river into a foam. I, I think, listen, ultimately, uh, Amy's right. Our engagement with rivers, it is the thing that provides the heartbeat and the soul of humanity itself. It's the thing that ultimately provides us with the most basic necessity we need for life. And that's water. So our association with rivers has always been practical water, a means of transport, a means of power, a means of industry. And this deep psychological, philosophical rooted connection that invariably has woven itself as part of the fabric and the tapestry of humanity and mankind itself. We are inseparable from each other. And we're drawn together and that 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 image you've just drawn of rivers connecting us, you know, weaving us together, almost like the threads of a of a piece of cloth. I wonder if, you know, it strikes me that three of my guests today, three of you incredibly creative, um, you know, in all of the work you do, both both written and, and audio. Um, is it the creative nature of your personalities you think that makes you connect with rivers? Or does the river bring out the creativity in you? Mark, where you know, am I on completely the wrong track here? Uh, not at all on the wrong track. I just wanted to say, I, I am like uh, Fergal, a, a chronic sufferer in terms of fly fishing. But I think <laughs> what I have always got, and I, and I started fishing when I was uh, five, actually, but fly fishing about 10 or 11, completely incompetently and not seeing many fish or not connecting with fish. But rivers are marvellous places and environments to be in and ideally up to your waist in them because when you're failing to catch a fish or working out how to, you're connecting with something under the surface of your own life too and you're looking really closely at the flies that are hatching and you happen to be noticing the kingfishers flying by or just occasionally if you're incredibly lucky an otter you're still but you're being revived and you are attempting to make contact with something which for most of our lives passes us by and that's what's under the surface and for Ted Hughes in particular connecting with those depths that Amy described in a kind of hydrological way was to connect with something deep in himself and he said fishermen have a biological dynamo in themselves that enables them to respond and requires them to care for these amazing places, which are the nearest things to paradise that we have in their pristine state. The tragedy is that in the last 60 or 70 years in particular, that series of wonderful pristine environments, we have been polluting, abusing chronically and putting all the life in them and thus our own lives in a deep sense at risk, at real jeopardy. And I think for me, reading Ted Hughes over the last 10 years has woken me up to the detail, the vividness, the energy, the depths of the life of rivers. And my own life has become 
more intense as a result. So, and he said, if, if you went fishing for a day or if you spent a day buying in and witnessing and being part of the river, you came back refreshed as though you'd had a week away. And it's exactly that. What came first? Was it the love of fishing that drew you to Hughes or was it, was it because, you know, because you're a writer and a poet and a thinker and is it, is, did Hughes come, come that way? Well, I, I mean, I had written some poems called The Catch in my early 20s. Um, so I've always fished. But actually, it was a stray comment from Jonathan Bate, who was working on his biography of Ted Hughes at a conference that I happened to host here. And he said, there's so much in the archive um, that relating to Ted Hughes nowadays. But fortunately, only some of it is of interest to the literary biographer like me. For instance, Ted Hughes kept these fishing diaries, brackets, yawn, irrelevant, just a hobby. And because <laughs> I'd always fished, I thought, great, I can, here's an excuse to find out more. And I ended up fishing in his footsteps and discovering that the poems that he wrote were immediate, brilliantly observed empirical responses to particular pools on particular rivers and particular times of day, particular days of the year. And so I just set out to get lots of free fishing with his friends in these beautiful places. And then the book kind of woke me up to the world and to the plight of rivers as a result of that. So I've been fishing in his footsteps and that's what my book is about. Fabulous. Thank you. And, and, and is, your conference is particularly about chalk streams. But, so why are it chalk is. streams so important and so precious? Well, partly, they, there are 220 or so chalk streams in, in the world, but England is home to 85% of them. They, because of the way that water enters a chalk stream from chalk aquifers, um, and we have chalk hills, which are the result of um, deposition of kind of uh, sea creature shells about 60 million years ago, rain falls onto chalk hills um, and it percolates slowly down, becoming mineral rich into aquifers, which then releases the rain about six months to a year after the rain fell. And that produces mineral-rich, equable, more or less consistent um, temperature water throughout the year. And then that encourages fantastic weed growth and um, invertebrate life, and then uh, mammals and birds that, and well as fish that feed on this. Um, so at their best, they are the jewels in the crown of um, our environment. And just David Attenborough, Wild Isles, had a wonderful section on chalk streams uh, last Sunday, his first episode. And, and they are, uh, they are, they're not wild, actually. We have managed them for centuries. So they are a perfect case study, it seems to me, of humanity's management of the natural world. And alas, again, since the Second World War, they're also a prime example of how that management has gone terribly astray through abstraction, over-abstraction for water, drinking water, through pollution, agricultural, sewage, and then really the abuse of their responsibilities to our rivers in general and chalk streams in particular by our water companies, particularly since privatisation in 1989. And so we think this is something that England has a unique responsibility for. And as it happens, the CAM is a much-abused chalk stream too. And it's 100 yards from where we're having our conference. So it seemed to us this was the right place at the right time. 
Yeah, definitely. Fergal, you're passionate about the damage we're doing to our, our rivers. You know, tell listeners who may not know just what's going on. Uh, well, the simple fact uh, and the reality is uh, our chalk streams in particular are simply a litmus test for the British way we've exploited the rest of the environment. And with escalating uh, intensity over the last few decades in the chalk streams in particular, what you're now witnessing, as Marcus highlighted, is three decades worth of lack of political oversight, three decades worth of political and regulatory misfunction and regulatory failure, and three decades worth of commercial exploitation simply to drive profitability and corporate greed on behalf of the water companies. Uh, to use some local chalk streams by way of definition, um, I think the uh, Cambridge Water, the last estimate I have from the Environment Agency, are over-abstracting the uh, local chalk streams to the tune of about 22 million litres of water per day. Uh, Anglia water, that is a multiple. I'll look it up in a second and give you the exact number. I think this bears witness to the simple fact. As we sit now in 2023, 86% of all rivers in England are failing to meet good ecological status. The last projection from DAFRA and government, which was just before Christmas, was that unless there is a significant intervention that number will increase to 94% by 2027. 94%? Uh, will fail to reach good ecological status. On the chemical side of things, there is not a single river in England passes the chemical test. Every single river is polluted. That's the world we've created, and that's the legacy we're about to allow our children and the children of our grandchildren to inherit. And clearly, I think that's an obscenity and completely unreasonable of us to inflict that on the rest of our ancestors and the generations that will follow on. Yeah, listeners can't see, but we're sitting here with our mouths open, nodding our heads. Fergal, it, it, th those are horrific figures. That When you say they're failing to meet those tests, that's as a direct result of... of sewage pollution going into the rivers or um, you mentioned over abstraction so that's obviously rivers drying up because we're taking far too much water than can yeah. be naturally replenished uh, you're talking about in terms of the chalk streams you're talking about a triple whammy the biggest impact of all is over abstraction uh, chalk water and the chalk aquifer that mark described is i once referred to it is crack cocaine for an adult party for one on a Friday night. Water <laughs> is big, expensive stuff to move around. And here we have, in the southeast of England, sweeping from the Norfolk coast through Cambridgeshire into Hertfordshire, down into Berkshire, Hampshire, Wiltshire, is some of the most pristine water imaginable on the planet. Water companies have to do very little to treat it. And there it is, right on the edge of the largest market and the largest conurbation. Yeah. And for water companies, this is highly addictive stuff. They have to spend little of anything treating it. And it's right on the edge of the largest market in the country. Mm. And they have been over, allowed to overexploit that resource. The earliest reference I can find, by way of example, was one of the leading hydrologists in the country as far back as 1963 was trying to raise a flag, and I am quoting R.C. Walters, 
that the chalk aquifer surrounding London had been pumped almost to extinction. And that mm. was in 1963. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. It's, it's terrifying. And, and it's, it has to be a result of failure of legislation, doesn't it? Um, and, and government policy oh, well, the, to some the, extent. The, well, the legislation is all there. So the, the chalk streams in particular, over abstraction, they've been filled full of sewage, which yeah. we now know generically throughout the country, think uh, the better part of six million hours over the last two years on something like three quarter of a million separate occasions. And unfortunately for the chalk streams, they get an extra layer of special ice cream and strawberries on top. And that uh, impact from agriculture and particularly intensive agriculture and we're talking about the over nutrients and fertilizers and nitrogen and phosphate applied to the landscape that as soon as it rains, runs off the land and straight into the nearest watercourse. That applies throughout the country. And then with an added layer of topsoil, particularly when you move out into the West Country where maize and stuff is growing, it leaves absolutely no cover on intensive agricultural land during the winter. And every time it rains, there's another layer of topsoil being washed into the nearest watercourse. And the simple truth of it, all of it is simply lack of leadership, lack of direction and complete failure of regulation and exploitation. All of the legal framework is there. It has always been there. We just have a bunch of regulators and government unwilling, unable or incapable of using the discretion and power they already have available to them. Yeah. So, so we're damaging this incredibly precious, fragile, vital habitat. Amy, just listening to what Fergal was saying, why would anyone want to be on or in the water if it's <laughs> if it's as, if it's as polluted as that? Because you are, you know, you're a you know experienced kayaker. You spend a lot of time on the water, but you also do wild swimming and you support the wild swimming movement. I mean, people are still still wanting to access all these spaces despite that risk of pollution, aren't they? Absolutely. And the, the, the pollution is there. But that doesn't mean that every time you set foot or, or the rest of your body in a river that you're going to get sick. And that's something that I, I, I really kind of react quite strongly to. It's, it's quite often used as a, as, a, as a stick to beat swimmers with and, and people accessing the river to say, you shouldn't be doing that. You'll get sick. The rivers are, the rivers are filthy um, because people have seen the news. I mean, thank God it, the, 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 um, the awareness is, is, is there and is building for this, this crisis. Um, but um, but but I get I get very very cross when people tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing in terms of you know, where where I belong, um, because we we don't have to give a choice to the fish and the otters and the birds for whom that river is home for the the, the myriad invertebrates that that they don't have a choice about whether or not they get in the water because it looks a bit mucky today, so um, so so we should be thinking more about rivers that should be safe. For, for swimming and even for drinking from you know there are there are springs in around here that I, that I will still drink from there are rivers in Scotland that I will drink from while I'm swimming um and that 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 shouldn't be that it seems to be something that people regard as astonishing and impossible but of course it's not that's where we come from you know that's where all our water comes from um the water that comes from our taps is 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 a river it's all part of the same continuous connected system um, and we've just sort of separated it's part of this this plague of nature disconnection that that we we're experiencing in this country we're the most nature disconnected country in europe um, and we're also one of the countries 
that lead the world in terms of biodiversity loss. And those two awful metrics are entirely connected. Um, we're, we're disconnected, so we don't know, we don't understand, we don't care that we're losing so fast. Um, so getting in a river is a very immediate way of sensing the problem. Um, you can you can smell when there's sewage there. You can taste some of the, um, the the sweetness that comes from from sewage and from excess nutrient in the water. Um, rivers have a have a taste that's distinctive to them. That taste should be of the geology and the and the and the life that's in there. Um, and too often now you're tasting something something else. Um, so so putting myself in, in, in a river, and I, I think a lot of swimmers and, and paddlers and paddleboarders feel feel the same. It, it's it's a piece of activism in its own right. Um, it's asserting. Um, not only our own right to to water that's clean enough to swim in, but the right of, of every living thing that depends on that on that water as well. It changes your relationship from a sort of from observer to to participant in nature. You know, we we are nature. We're supported by this extraordinary web of interconnected um, life. Um, and I think probably being in a river is when I feel that most particularly the extraordinary moments when I've when I've donned a mask and snorkel and put my face below the surface um, in, in chalk streams in particular, you know, where it's clear enough to, to see the bottom, to see every every pebble, every piece of gravel, every every egg on a leaf under under the water. I mean, just mind blowing. And there are Thankfully, still rivers where you can do that. Um, the chalk rivers that get forgotten about in this country are the ones up here in Yorkshire and uh, on the Yorkshire Wolds. Um, so although we are in the southern half of, the, of, of Great Britain, just about thinking of, of rivers, of chalk streams, of chalk rivers as a, as a southern phenomenon, it's not entirely true. Um, but we, we do have our, <laughs> You're making a have claim our precious there. ones here. I am. I'm, staking, I'm raising the flag here for, for Yorkshire's chalk streams. Yeah. Um, and those those are the ones that I, I've spent more time in and, and by, um, and where I've had these extraordinary experiences of being part of the flow and part, and, and seeing actually how the fish that, that, that are there, they're not bothered by me. They're not bothered by by a, a kayak floating above they're not bothered by a, a swimmer in the water they you're just almost um a piece of flotsam they, they they're so much more um swift and nimble and in their element um they just flip past you the sort of the, the shoals part and, and, and reform around you so yeah it's been absolutely transformative for me being being not just on and by rivers but being in them and, and under them um how have we how have we let this happen under our very noses? Is it because people can't access rivers as much as they would? Uh, you know, is that that kind of keep out, trespasses will be prosecuted approach that means people don't connect? Or is it just we've been we've been talking, but no one's been listening? I think it's a bit of a combination of all those things. We currently have a, an uncontested right of access to, to just 3% of, of English rivers. Um, so potentially on the other 97%, you know, if you if you dip a toe in the water, if you launch a, a boat of some sort, or even if you sit on the bank, um, then there's a good chance someone will come along, tell you you're trespassing and, and, and move you on. Um, so there is but that. But that 3% figure has been, been questioned, hasn't it? I know the World Swimming Group has said actually, you know, that, that, that there's not any, in many, many cases, there's actually no legal um, restrictions. It's just people stick up signs and it puts people off. <laughs> The three three percent is the rivers for which there's no statutory access. So right. so statutory um, navigate right navigation applies to tidal waters. 
so below the tidal limit of, of rivers um, mm. um, and rivers for which there is a formal access agreement. Um, so um, the 3% doesn't mean that it's physically impossible to access the other 97%, very much not the case. You know, the rivers, I, nearly all the rivers I paddle on swim in. Um, I do so, you know, and, and I haven't, I'm, I'm very rarely challenged. Um, but if, if a landowner decided to try and exclude you, then it's their legal right to to try and do that. Um, so you know it it is very much a grey area, and we within the right to roam campaign, we 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 want a, this all clarified um, to create a situation much like they have in Scotland, where um, they have a freedom to roam, they have right to roam, um, and a right to access all rivers, um, providing they followed they follow a, a code of of conduct, um, which makes perfect sense and seems to work extremely absolutely. well absolutely absolutely i mean fergal you you know you've got quite a, a a big media following you've got a very powerful voice you've been <laughs> making these statements about rivers and pollution for some time what, what why do you think why do you think nothing's changing i mean what what can we do what more can we do oh well listen it is things are definitely definitely changing if i could just pick up briefly with Amy, and I have to raise a hand here. Um, I am clearly involved with a uh, fly fishing club that uh, owns two and a half miles of uh, riparian <laughs> rights and fishing rights and a chalk stream in Hertfordshire. Yeah. Um, listen, I personally, I think that the advent and renewed enthusiasm for swimming in rivers is utterly fantastic, uh, as indeed just people kayaking and paddleboarding and getting out there. I unfortunately have had some occasions, in fact, after the first lockdown, where in the upper half of the river, we turned a blind eye to members of the public coming out to enjoy a very open part of the river. Um, and unfortunately, I was alerted one day to the portable barbecues, the bonfires, the litany of rubbish, the used nappies that had been thrown into bushes, the little black plastic bags, containing any amount of dog poo and indeed any number of golden retrievers and black labradors chasing into the river, uh, pursuing any number of fluorescent tennis balls. Um, and shall we just say I became very animated that afternoon and uh, found my way, barged my way into the table, scattering uh, tables before me <laughs> and was rather astonished when that one family uh, kind of suggested to me, well, uh, we're really sorry, but uh, we're members of the local wildlife trust and we thought this was part of the nature reserve. Not a sensible place to have a barbecue, is it really? <laughs> uh, there you go. So the truth is we do live in an island um, and I think there is a conversation to be had um, about how we make use of the very limited amount of resource we have. But in terms of Amy, and just to clarify it, um, it's something, and I would say this as the uh, owner of two and a half miles of river, the law is quite clear. You come onto our property, you're trespassing, and we have the right to ask you to remove and indeed take civil action against you for being on our property. That said, I think there is a conversation to be had. Clearly, we need to have it. And I hope that all parties concerned can behave like grown-ups while we mm. have a, and hopefully reach a conclusion that everyone can live with and be happy and satisfied with. It does seem to me there is something, and Fergal and Amy will come at me if I'm wrong, particular to English law and property law, which 
um, results in Fergal saying, I'm an owner of two and a half miles of river and I could prosecute, you know, for trespass. It's yeah. 90 years since the Kinder Scout mass trespass yeah, began, yeah. you know, established, began to establish a right to roam. There are something, practicalities mean that there can't be a mass trespass on rivers in a way that's compatible with responsible access. But I think, and you said, Amanda, you know, fishing rose greatly in popularity. It is a powerful lobby group, but it seems to me we have to form a kind of coalition of care, responsibility, promoting public access responsibly as they manage it in Scotland to our rivers. And I think fishermen need to understand that, what Amy has said, that a wild swimmer going down stream or a kayaker does not actually disturb the fish but we have a kind of culture of exclusivity particularly where on chalk streams where this amazing clear pristine water is said to be as clear as gin and twice as expensive there is a sense that we need i think for the sake of um our water, living water, to, to to just educate the population. And I only knew, realised this a couple of years ago, that those dogs charging into a river in pursuit of fluorescent bulls are charging in probably with last week's application of flea treatment on their backs, which then is devastating to invertebrate life in the river. There is such a lot we can do, I think, by underwater photography, by film, by writers, by poets making us care, touching us, and then making us know we are, it's all our responsibility. Though these rivers legally are not yet owned by everyone, the problem is everyone's. And I think we need, I mean, I'm really interested in reaching the next generation of water bill payers. So associated with this, with this conference, we're taking um, a session to the local sixth form college and so asking people, You're, you've all got mobile phones. You've all got broadband. We kind of regard broadband as a human right. So how much are you prepared to pay for broadband? And how much are you prepared to pay for living water? And if that helps fund, if we pay more, if that helps fund the construction of reservoirs, and I think the last reservoir to be opened in England was in 1989. And the number of housing developments where water companies have a contractual obligation to supply water. We just have not got our heads around this. And I think ultimately, water companies bear a, sh- a real and direct responsibility and Fergal is rightly their scourge. But so so is governments. Government ha- and, and we have to have a mass movement to make everyone wake up to our responsibility. Frankly, if we do, then what Fergal described as this, and, and Amy too, this extraordinary water, not just in, pure, in chalk streams, let it alone, let them be, and they will recover, and we will all benefit from that. I, I think Mark has just made, for me, what is the most telling point behind this that is grossly overlooked. How did we get here? What is one of the fundamental errors I think the existing environment organisations have made People think this is about right and wrong. Here is this river. It should be perfect. We're exploiting it. That's wrong. Here's how we make it right. But Marx actually identified the philosophical bit in the background that everybody overlooks. Actually, this is about political decisions about the price of water. And it's been that for the last 30 years. And the 
ethos and the drive and the ambition was to maintain minimum possible cost for water bills and for water consumption, regardless of the impact it was having on the environment. I can give you a very simple example of that until quite recently of what the regulator actually had an internal policy, which was referred to by the acronym CELL, Sustainable Economic Levels of Leakage, the purpose of which was so long as the cheaper option was to continue and increase levels of abstraction from our chalk streams, if that was cheaper than fixing the leaky pipes and networks, then they were going to over-abstract from the chalk streams, regardless of the environmental impact. That's what's been driving the whole thing, and that's what we need to change. And that's what's slowly beginning to happen, because public opinion has now reacted in a very adverse way against that policy and against government decisions and against the water industry and the regulators. Yeah, and it's not that we're not paying enough for our water. It's that the companies are extracting huge profits and not using the income that they're getting to, as you say, fix those leaks, Fergal. Uh, and, oh, there's and, been... There's been plenty of money swilling around the industry. Again, for your listeners, water companies, to the best of my knowledge, have now abstracted in the region of £72 billion worth out of those companies. Mm. They're currently carrying about £60 billion worth of debt. And just over a year ago, off what the regulator, in my opinion, in an effort to do a bit of corporate rear-end covering, wrote to the water companies reminding them that in the regulator's opinion, they've had all of the funding they've needed for 30 years to fix and maintain the sewage system to comply with the law. Clearly, that hasn't happened. Question becomes, whatever happened, that money? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a whole other podcast, I think, because <laughs> you know where that's gone. And I think it would be fair to say that, you know, your objection to those to those users of, of your bit of river were not that they were, as Amy has described, gently swimming down the middle, that they were, you know, creating mess and, and destroying habitat oh, and this, to be, behaving to be in a clear, completely inappropriate way on the river bank, you know, it, so you're not banning the wild swimmer, are you? To be, to be very clear about this, there is obviously a conversation we need to have. And I have absolutely no difficulty or sensitivity towards that one at all. Would I personally go so far as suggesting there should be a completely 100% unbridled access to every river in the country? Well, the answer to that is no. Mm. Because at the Amwal Magna, we're desperately trying to safeguard the last sole remaining breeding population of wild brown trout in the whole of the River Lee, south from Hertfordshire, whose ancestors, and we have DNA tested this, whose ancestors swam across Doggerland 8,000 years ago into the Thames, took a right-hand turn, and they're still there. <laughs> so I think we do need to find a yeah, balance. And that's ultimately what we've got to try and rationalise over the next few years. We wouldn't have any argument with you on, on that, Fergal, that that's something that no, know, we've, we've been fairly explicit about, that within a default system of access, there absolutely should be um, case yeah. that, that there, there are sure. cases for exclusion of particularly sensitive habitats. Um, so, so, um, so, yeah, I, think, I mean, conversation I think is... ultimately uh, we're all agreed there's a conversation that we need to be had. Yeah. And we, and we spend an inordinate amount of time within the campaign fielding questions about litter and about dogs. Those are the, mm. the, the <laughs> few things that come back to us. So, you, so yeah. in terms of right to roam bingo, you ticked both both there. Um, and listen, but these... all, all of this all of this said, uh, and I do need to flag this up, uh, but as part of my way of 
beginning this campaign for myself and attracting people into what I was thinking about, I did uh, spend about two years walking every single mile of every single river within inside the boundaries of the M25. Wow, and that's an odyssey. Point, never at any point was I told I shouldn't be there. Certainly if you live inside London, there's any amount of river walks to be had right on your doorstep and everybody should get out there and enjoy every single mile of it. It was a fascinating journey. I can feel another psychogeographer book coming on here. You know, we might be putting a call out to Ian Sinclair. He's done the motorway. He's done the M25. Perhaps he needs to do the rivers within the M25. Um, I, this, we, sh- we could go on for hours, but we should probably draw this to a close. I, I'm going to ask you, what, what do you, what do you want to happen? What's the call out? What's the shout out either, for, you know, for listeners, but also, you know, for government or policymakers or landowners? What is the one thing you're asking or the couple of things that you absolutely need to happen now? Fergal. Going to start with you. Oh, uh, for me, it's very, very simple. That uh, I'm assuming that there will be a change of administration at the next general election, and whatever shape and form that takes, needs to have the ambition, the drive, the wherewithal, and the determination to reform the regulatory system as it stands, to enforce the legislation as it stands, and ensure the next time that we try and estimate, engage, and process our rivers, that as the law required. 100% of them will be in good ecological condition. We're a long way from that, but I have every belief it can, should be done. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Amy? Um, I would say on a personal level, get out and find your local river, get to know it. Um, mm. If that means getting in it, all the better, but that's obviously a personal choice. Um, but we know that that immersion in cold water is exceptionally good for you if it's done appropriately and safely. Um, and just, yes, get, get to know... And think about where that water's coming from and where it's going and yeah. what it's carrying with it that you have um, that's in your power to to influence. Um, and then on a on a national level, yes, obviously we're hoping for a, a change in administration. Um, the, the the Labour Party have already um, said that they will legislate um, on on access to to land and water. Um, a right to Roam Act is something that we've been, that's what we're calling for. Um, we, we've yet to see exactly what they mean by that but um but we are working with them to hash something out um and a huge amount of of consultation and public education has to be part and parcel of that um so um so massively um increased focus on on public education um the countryside code is barely worth the um the pixels it's, it appears on in, in, in your screen um so something much more in depth much more informative yeah. much more practical is required yeah. um and a, and a publicity campaign to go with that yeah. um just to ensure that people can get to know their land and their river yeah. um and then become as naturally seems to happen when people have close contact with the river become activists become advocates for it yeah yeah and doing that in partnership and mark we'll give you those closing words for a call out the local challenge for me hosting this conference in Cambridge and the speakers we've assembled are amazing but as Amy Jane pointed out they are chalky white (laughs) and we're not quite 60 million years old each but (laughs) I am really determined through speaking in schools and raising more money to support this to get teenagers out into our rivers, kick sampling, invertebrate monitoring, citizen science to monitor, to undo the damage and cuts to the Environment Agency staff to supplement that, to stand in the river themselves, to wake up to their wonder and then join this groundswell of public opinion. 
Um, because unless we're speaking to the next generation, then they are not the next generation of voters, water bill payers, water consumers, water enjoyers, then we will not manage this. So I think that's my hope, really, my, my prime hope amongst all of this conversation. Thank you. And I guess my call out to, to listeners is to, to get down to your local bookshop. Please do that rather than go to Amazon and get yourself a copy of The Catch, Fishing for Ted Hughes, um, <laughs> and The Flow, Rivers, Water and Wildness, because they're both beautiful books and they deserve they did deserve space on your shelf. Thank you so much to my guests, to Fergal, to, to Amy Jane and, and, and to Mark. And thank you, Mark, for, for bringing the, the plight of chalk streams to our attention through the conference and your other work. So it's a huge thank you to you all for joining us. And it's just so much more to be done. And we're right behind you on the pod. So come back and talk to us again when we've made some progress. Thank, Thank you, you very much indeed, Amanda. Thank you. And Mark, I thought there was a very, a very subtle nod to Fergal there with your teenage uh, talking to teenagers and getting them to kick the. Uh, I think, I think if you could give us a, is, give uh, a quick rendition, uh, someone, <laughs> somewhat, uh, somewhat unfortunately, uh, Jim, as Amy is well aware, that is going to cost you twenty quid. The, uh, <laughs> oh no! Fine. Uh, Fine payable to the Wild Fish Conservation yeah. charity, <laughs> of which I am uh, vice president thereof. This co-host yeah. of the conference, just Google yeah. uh, Wild Fish okay. Donate. Right. You'll find oh. their donation page. Twenty pounds, sir. I will expect. Uh, 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 consider it. Consider it done, or to be will be done. <laughs> You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch, and don't forget to follow us on social media.